Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Okay. So um, it's written to like a, a newspaper. Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding the Ten Commandments. I have learned a great deal from you. And I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do some specific, I do need some specific advice from you. However, regarding some of the specific laws outside of the Big Ten and how to best follow them. All right. So this person's trying to understand some of the laws, right? So for instance, he writes, when I burn a bull on the altar as sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord. That's Leviticus 1 verse 9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. How should I deal with this? Or I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as it suggests in Exodus chapter 21 verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? 20 pieces of silver. Okay. 10 pieces of silver. But Leviticus 25, Sherry, verse 44, states that I can buy slaves from the nations that are around me. So a friend of mine claims that this applies to Canadians, but not Mexicans. Can you clarify that for me? Or I have this neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath, and it's clear from Exodus 35, verse 2, that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? And finally, Leviticus 21, Leviticus 21, verse 20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. Now, I have to admit that I wear reading glasses, as you can see. Does my vision have to be 2020, or is there some wiggle room here? What's this particular author writing for this advice? What are they expressing, you know, ob- you know through this allegory, this, this kind of writing? What are they trying to express? Contradictions. Interesting. Contradictions in that... You're saying there's another place in scripture that says don't don't um, sell your daughters and don't make sacrifices. Is that what you're suggesting? And it also seems contra- con- contradictive to the nature of what, what we would understand as the nature of God. Okay, good. Other thoughts? Cultural okay. contradiction. It's cultural. Like back then they did that. Today we don't. He's pointing out the difference in the cultural back then what was normal versus now what's acceptable okay what else what's being taking i would say they're taking something literal that's not meant to be taken literally especially when you're getting back into some of the old old testament stuff so when you're talking about literal i mean in terms of application to us in today's time or you're saying it wasn't even literal back then i don't think it's literal literal even back then this is Gotcha. This okay. is a verbal history that went down hundreds of years. Gotcha. Okay. Any other thoughts? What's being communicated through that? Any challenges being communicated just come to mind? I mean, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? How do we take a book that was written thousands of years ago to people in a different culture facing different problems and find meaning in it for our own time and circumstance. Isn't that the big overarching question that we have to answer? Well, I think we do that um, because we have to begin with a fundamental assumptions about what the Bible is and what, what it is not. So let's talk about that for a moment. It's a little bit different way of approaching our, our text and our, our gathering this morning. We're going to talk some big things and then we're going to maybe try to apply it to how we read a portion of a text. But what are some of the fundamental assumptions about what the Bible is and what it's not? You all can pick the is or the is not, either one. What is it and what is it not from your perspective? I think a lot of people think it's like the answer book to 
that are all everyday problems. Right. Or, so, or challenges. All right. So it's the answer book. And when you are faced with something, you just have to find the right text and then apply it to your situation. And voila, you have the answer, right? Yeah. Okay. You agree with that statement? You Me personally? That's what it is? No, I, I personally do not. Okay. What else? What it is and what it is not. I think it's a very, very broad story. It paints a very, very large and broad picture. And you can't, it is not something you can just pick little pieces of the picture out of and see the whole picture. So it's not something you can just like randomly pick to and, and pull something out and, and then be able to understand just from those simple sentences, right? What it means. It's part of a bigger story. Okay. Other ideas about what it is and is not. What do you think? It doesn't have to be your opinion. What have you heard? What are some suggestions you've heard about what it is and what it's not? I would say it's more of a guide instead of a manual. So it kind of gives you a way to get to an answer, but not gives you the exact answer. Right. I like that. So it's more, you believe it's more toward the guide side of things as opposed to a list of commands to obey or, or even promises that we're supposed to claim, right? Exactly. Because it, it teaches you through stories, stories that happened back then. So having to translate into something now is gotcha. more of a guide. Right. Exactly. Yeah, good. All right. Any other thoughts? I learned it was basic instructions before leaving Earth. Anybody heard that one before? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving Earth. Yeah, Mike's heard that one before. But that's not how we, we don't view it as this magic answer book here at the table, right? We don't think it's um, like some sort of a manual that you consult when you're making decisions um, in life, although we do um, rely on scripture to help us make choices and decisions, right? It's not the basic instructions before you leave earth. It's not even just a list of commands to obey or promises to claim. We believe that scripture is God's story, right? It's this drama of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And the Bible sets out for us the fundamental problem and the solution to humanity's dilemma, what is humanity's dilemma? From the perspective of the scriptures, what is humanity's dilemma? Anyone? What's our dilemma as humans? How to reach God. Okay, that is a challenge for sure. That might be something we have to deal with as a result of the challenge, right? So we're sinners. Okay, um, we're sinners. Good. All right. Is there more? Is there more to what's happened? Our dilemma? We're separated from God. So that's how to reach God. Yeah. Okay. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. Okay, Phil? I think just trying to understand who God is from a human perspective is very difficult and a dilemma Okay. from a fallen state. <clears throat> Johannes? I think it's how to stay in a right relationship with God. How to stay. Can, can we modify that a little bit? Because I think we're on the right. I mean, all of you obviously are on the right track. But I think part of the challenge that we miss is you talked about staying on the right track, right? So that supposes that there was a design and a purpose for man and his creation, right? We are made in the image of God to live in right relationship with God, the world, and everyone around us, right? And that has been, as Nancy said, that has been broken. So really, I guess the best way to describe the dilemma is we're made in the image of God for a purpose to live in relationship with God, and yet our rebellion, our sin causes there to be that separation, and so our dilemma then really is how are we able to be restored, right, back to the way that God originally designed it? How do we get to be put back into right relationship, right? And the challenge with that, of course, is the Bible gives us those answers, but they can be hard to understand and apply, and hear me carefully here, because it wasn't written to us. 
Now, some of you are thinking to myself, thinking to yourself, you've totally lost it, Pastor Dave. What do you think I mean when I say that the Bible is difficult to understand and apply because it wasn't written to us? And I know my grandfather, my grandmother, my mom, if she were listening, would be like wagging her finger at me. But what do you think I mean? Let's do a little second level thinking, get past our knee jerk reactions that we might have. What do I mean by it's not written to us? And that's what makes it difficult to understand and apply. We weren't the original audience. I was going to say New Testament was written, you know, over a span of like 200 years, the different books, and was focused on conversion of the people at the time. Old Testament was, you know, the Jewish keeping the Jewish faith alive as they moved on, keeping their story with them. Okay, true. Both of those are true. A um, hundred years or so for the Second Testament, um, four or five hundred years of writing in the, you know, even though it covers a lot more history than that, the First Testament, four or five hundred years of compiling, writing and compiling the First Testament. Those bring out challenges, not written. We weren't the original audience. Any other, any other thoughts about what I mean by the Bible is hard to understand and apply because it wasn't written to us? I think it's because it was based upon the cultures of the time and what was going on at the time. And what we have going on now is not the same thing. And so when we're trying to make that application, sometimes it's apples to oranges. Right. So a lot of times it's answering questions that we're not asking and vice versa, right? I understand what you're saying there. I think I understand what you're saying there, right? It's, it's written, it's answering questions for a world that's very different than our own in some ways, but also not. Yeah. And I think that you have to understand the historical context of what was going on at the time, because what was going on in history then is not necessarily what's going on in history now. So there are some specifics that are different, but the overall issue of humanity being, we use this language here at the table, east of Eden, right? We're east of Eden. We're east of where God, east in the scripture is always away from God. We're away from what we originally intended. So let me follow up that, that statement that I made before, that it wasn't written for us with this statement. Although it wasn't written to us, it was written for us. Does that change things? How does, and if so, how so? It wasn't written to us, but it is clearly written for us. What does that mean to us? See, to me, that resonates. Okay, why? You know, when I think of the Bible, you get its ability to provide revelation no matter where you're at and what your circumstance, I think, is its power. I like that. Well said. Any other thoughts? Well, we still struggle with some of the same, not all of the same, but some of the same battles, relationship battles, kind of uh, cultural battles within the politics that we have. And they may not be the same as that, but we still have leaders and we still have government system of sorts. Yeah, we're still humans. We still have human forms of government. Well said, Courtney. Yeah, we we have a lot of the same challenges because we we're in the same boat with humanity, right? As it's been since the beginning of time, right? East of Eden. So it wasn't written to us, but it wasn't written, but it was written for us. Any other thoughts about how that, you know, does that resonate with you? And what, what does that mean to you? It's not written to us, but written for us. Any implications of that? What are the implications of it not being written to us, but for us? So typically when something's not written to you, you can kind of read it and go, well, that doesn't, you know, that's none of my business. That doesn't really apply to me. Is that fair? Something's not for you. I mean, uh, written to you, right? No direct application to you. But if something is written for us, what are the implications there? Go ahead, Stephen story's not complete it's still unfolding and we still need to play a part in it i like that yeah we're we're invited peter calls us right the third testament we're living testament so there is some connection for us that we're supposed to take from these um texts 
um, that are not written to us, but the scripture clearly says are for us, right? And we have therefore a responsibility since they're written for us and they're designed to help us overcome, right? The, the challenge that we face being east of Eden. And I would argue that means that we should then be, the implication is that we need to develop a holy habit, a, a rhythm of reading and study that understands that truth, that is not written to us, but for us, and using that fundamental assertion to then guide our study. And the way that we talk about it a lot at the table is this, it can't mean to us what it didn't first mean to its original hearers. That's our take on that. And then from that, we then make application, right? So here's the challenge. Recent research has been done about Americans and our, familiar, our familiarity, say that word 10 times fast, familiarity with scripture. 87% of households have a Bible. That doesn't surprise you, does it? 87% of American households have a Bible. Does that surprise you? No. Speak your head, yes, no, say yes, no, right? The average is three in a household. Now I'm a pastor, I have a lot more than that, but I suppose there are a number of you that have three or more Bibles in your household. And of those people, those 80%, 87% of American households who have a Bible, 10% have read none of it. So one out of 10 doesn't even open it up, all right? Half of them, 50%, say they've read, quote, relatively little. 13% say they have read a few of the books and 11%, one, just roughly one in 10, about the same as who have never read any of it, have read the entire text. 87% have a house, of households have a Bible, 10% have read none of it, 50% relatively little, 13% a few books, 11% the entire text. What does that tell you? Anything? What do those numbers mean to you? What does that tell us? Anything? It's a hard book to read. It's very, it's very commonplace, but it's, it's not self I don't know how to say, it's not self-explanatory. Self it's not, it is, I, I'm not. It's not really meant to be read like a regular book from the front to the back. You start reading that book from the front, it is abusive. Well, it's hard to get past Leviticus. It can be. I, I get you, right? What else? What else does that tell you, those numbers? I'm, I'm interested in the in the 1% that have read none. I'm sorry, the 1 out of 10 that has read none and the 1 out of 10 that have read It's a normal curve. That is kind of a normal curve, aren't you right? That's right. That's exactly right, Jay. Any other thoughts about what that means? 87% of households have a Bible. 10% have read none of it. 50 have read relatively little. 13 a few books. And by the way, it's sometimes it's it might be better to refer to the scripture as a library than a book because it is made up of multiple books. So think of it more like a library. That might be a better way of thinking of it. But um, and only one in 10 have read the entire text. Now, I'm not going to ask you which category you fit in, but I'm going to tell you this. When asked what prevents people from studying the Bible, number one answer is, anybody want to take a guess? Number one answer. It's too hard to read. Actually, that's a good answer. Um, that's about number five on the list. So you got, you, you're up on the board there. Yeah. They don't know how to study. That's number three. They don't know how to. Time. Not, not enough time. Lack of, uh, yeah. Number two, don't have enough time, Stephen. I was going to say time. Yeah. Lack of time. Anybody else got one for us? Don't see the need to. You don't see the, uh, don't see how it relates. That's number six. Good. Phil, you had one? Not really much, I think it's not relative to today's world. Uh -huh. I don't, I don't see how it relates. Good. Yeah. I saw Kylie. Yeah. I just said not relatable. Yep. Not relatable. Good. The There's two more categories we've missed. Let's see if we can catch them real quick. The 80% all have like the King James version. 
<laughs> They're reading in translation they can't understand. Well, um, number four on the list is they don't read it because they don't agree with what it says. That's an interesting statement, right? I'm not reading it because I don't agree with what it says. Anybody find that to be kind of odd? That was yeah, how do you know if you haven't read it? How do you know what it says? <laughs> exactly. But number one, lack of priority. Lack of making it a priority, something that they develop a holy habit around, a rhythm about. But that's not, I can't do anything. We can't do anything as a community. I don't think really from a Zoom perspective or even a person for me to do anything other than challenge us to talk about making something a priority. It's about all I can do is right, encourage you to make it a priority. It is a holy habit, right? One of the seven ways I argue that God speaks to us in many ways, the primary one, right? I can only tell you it needs to be a priority for those of us who are Christ followers. That's about as good as I could do, right? Other than sit there and try to guilt you and say, well, if you're in that last group who's never read it, or if you're in the third group that reads only a few of the books, whatever, and I can try to guilt you into doing something, but really that only lasts as long as I can apply that pressure, right? That's up to you and the Holy Spirit working in you in your spiritual formation to make it a priority. However, what we can do I think is answer the, the more pressing reason that's given in a lot of instances here, which is, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to approach the scriptures in a way that you're talking about. I don't have a rhythm. I don't have, I might even have the holy habit of opening up the scripture and setting aside time, but I don't really have a rhythm as to how to go about it. So here's what I wanna say at the outset. There is no such thing as the way, the rhythm, or the holy habit to establish when it comes to reading and studying. The reason I'm calling it rhythms, rhythms, is that they a rhythm is something that changes sometimes throughout songs and different albums. If you're thinking musically, right, a rhythm is something that can change with seasons, with times, with where you are in your life things like that, as opposed to a static kind of a thing that's set in stone, that is the same um, every single day for every single day of your life. I have a spiritual mentor who for the entire 30 years that I've known him has done the same thing. He has read um, The Daily Bread. Anybody familiar with that, that uh, devotional piece? It's a little book that's been put out by Radio Bible Class for literally 50 years. And it gives you a scripture reading, gives you a short devotional little piece. And he's done that every single day or basically every day for 30 years. I thought that was what I needed to do, but for whatever reason, that wasn't connecting with me. So what I want to, what I want to do today is I want to suggest to you that, and maybe some of you have already done this, um, I want to suggest to you that there are some simple ways, there are some simple approaches that we can use to establish this kind of a holy habit rhythm in our lives. And I want to suggest it to you, and then I want us to put it into practice for the few minutes we have left, because it's not, it's not really complicated. And this isn't original to me. I learned this from Dr. Gerald Bray when I was a student at Beeson Divinity School down in Birmingham. I had the fortune of, of doing some of my divinity studies at Beeson while I was pastoring in Chattanooga. And basically he said, one of the simplest ways to approach scripture is to ask of every passage that we look three questions, three general questions. And I put this out in a PDF form that you can now grab if you like, if you've already had it. Um, I just realized, David, that I can put this also, I think, in my, I can actually put a link in here for you. I'm gonna put a link in. I copied a link. I'm gonna put it in the chat. So some of you may not have seen that I actually put this. Let me see if I can get this to go in. Give me just a second. Well, I didn't come. Everything went crazy. I'm not going to be able to do that. Everything went crazy when I lost my connection. All my pages dropped out. But it is in the Church Flare app. You can go to any of the gatherings from today. There's a link in there that will put this uh, for you. You can grab and print out on your own. But it's basically three simple questions, three broad questions. 
And then within those broad questions, there are three other questions or some other questions we can ask, all right? So the first broad question is simply this, what does the passage tell us about God? Not too difficult to start with, right? What does the passage tell us about God? We can ask questions like, who is he? Thank you, David. Ah, oh, I love it when somebody can jump in and save me. Technology, wonderful. Yeah, so what does the passage tell us about God? In other words, who is he? What is he like? What has he done? The second broad question, what does this text say about us as human beings? In other words, what are we supposed, what, what were we meant to be? How are we supposed to live? What's gone wrong? Anything like that. And then third question, what does this passage teach us about how we're supposed to respond to God? All right, so three very broad questions, and then within them, some sub-questions, like in that last one, what does this passage teach us about how we're supposed to respond to God? In other words, what has God done to address what's gone wrong? What does God expect us to do in light of this, right? And we can use those first two questions to answer the third question. So what I'd like us to do is probably the most familiar and uh, and famous, for that matter, text of all about the scripture is found in Psalm 119. So what I'd like us to do this morning is just kind of work through this. I'm offering this up to y'all as a way of developing this kind of holy habit and rhythm in your life as something to try. How do we approach a text? I'm not going to give you the texts to read every week, but as you dig into whatever text appeals to you, you can use these same questions, right? And we're going to do that for Psalm 119, and we're just going to focus on, let's just do verses 9 through 16. The interesting thing about Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses. That's more verses than 14 uh, other First Testament um, books, and it's longer than 17 New Testament books. So that kind of gives you an example of how big it is, and 171 of the 176 verses have a reference to Scripture. And then the way it's broken down is it's got 22 sections that correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So like, for instance, in the Greek Orthodox Church, it's called the alphabet of the spiritual life. So we're going to jump in. We're going to look at the second section here, the bet section in 9 through 16. And I'm going to read, and then we're just going to kind of go, what does this tell us about God first, and then about us as human beings, and then finally, what we're supposed to, what it, how we're supposed to respond to God. And if you've downloaded that um, PDF that David posted either now or ahead of time, you'll see I've put the text on the left for you, and then I've put the questions there for you on the right. And David, while I'm reading this, if you wouldn't mind just typing in those three questions for me, just in case people don't have the ability to do that. Can you do that, David? In the chat box, David is saying yes. Good. All right. He's going to do that while I'm reading. So Psalm 119, listen from uh, verse 9. How can young people keep their paths pure? by guarding them according to what you've said. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me stray from any of your commandments. I keep your word close in my heart so that I won't sin against you. You, Lord, are to be blessed. Teach me your statutes. I will declare out loud all the rules you have spoken. I rejoice in the content of your laws as if I were rejoicing over great wealth. I will think about your precepts and examine all your paths. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget, forget what you have said. So it's just a short nine through 16, seven verses that David's put up there for us. Here are the questions. What does the passage tell us about God. This is what we call second level thinking in uh, educational theory. I wrote a little bit about this this week. Mr. Phillips will be familiar with this, probably Stephen as well. Second level thinking, how do we use a really broad question like this to develop further, deeper inquiry? So what does it tell us about God? Look at it, nine through 16, you can pick anything. What does it tell us about God? Go ahead, Mike. There's a um, picture of authority there. Okay. Um, Someone who has a right to speak. Okay. Good. Or 
eight in the set preset. Not that good. Excellent. David made a nice, easy, downloadable PDF. Thank you, David. What else? What does it teach us about God, about who he is, what he's like, what he's done? Maybe focus in on the last one, what he has done. Well, he has given us guidelines to help keep us pure if we will follow them, think about them, and try and pursue them. Right. So he has, he has communicated to us, number one, right? And he's communicated through a set of, this is what I expect from you, right? All right, certain set of relational um, cues, good. All right, what else? What else does it teach us about God? Who he is, what he's like, what he's done? I think that he's a teacher, so he doesn't just give you the statutes, but he teaches you how to apply the statutes. All right, I like that. He has a bent toward teaching. All right, good. Other thoughts? What does it tell us about God? You know, part of the challenge, I think, right, is when we hear these questions, we're, we're looking to read in the text, God is fill in the blank, or this is what, you know, I'm telling you about God, right? So this is, I understand, a little bit more challenging here, but it's a good broad-based way to start. What other pieces are in here that give us a little sense about who God, what God is like and who he is, that kind of thing? Anything come to mind? Mike? There's, a, there's an order to yeah. God's um, instruction, I guess. He... Okay. he laws laws in our own in our own world laws uh you know they help keep order okay and so god has also set laws for us so that our lives can be kept in order so you could say god is a god of order is mm -hmm. that a fair statement okay i think there's an implication that god cares for us Okay, where do you get that sense, Phil? Just because of the fact that this individual, I mean, I know any ruler will set up laws, which might not be good, but the way this individual talks about those laws, I will not forget what you've said, I will delight. There's an implication there to me that there's something that is really important and God is sharing that like with us. What else do we see about who God is and what he's like? Anybody? The way this is written, I mean, it's you're sitting in third person watching this other person being very devout. And I mean, it's you're watching her faith. Okay. Yeah. Very true. What else do we see? Anybody? What else do we pick up about who God is? I don't want to shortchange your opportunity here. So then let's, we would then move on. If you were doing in just a study of this text and you've answered that question, and I encourage you to think about journaling, but it doesn't have to be journaling. It could just be a thought process, right? So then you move on to the second broader question, which is what does this text say about us as human beings? In other words, what does it teach us about us? What were we meant to be? How we're supposed to live? Maybe even what's gone wrong? Anything like that. What does it tell us about that? I think it tells us that God has mapped out a path, but we have strayed from that path and that he's, and that the author is trying to guide us back to knowing what that path is. Like that, right? The God's laid out a path. There is a path and God's made it, made us, you know, made us aware of that, but we have strayed from that path. Hence the idea of needing to remain pure, right? Or regain purity. Good. What else? What does it tell us about us? What we're meant to be, how we're supposed to live, what's gone wrong? I think it also tells us that we can hear from God and that he does speak to us if we are attuned to listen. Okay, good. Excellent thought. I like that. 
What else? Uh, one of the thoughts that popped up were um, the fact that how happy they are with the laws. So in theory, these these laws are good for us and you know as a result you know they make us happy uh which is not what you normally assume when you talk about laws <laughs> like the fact that by following the the commands the precepts all of that that it's actually the way to enjoy life rather than to be miserable am i right dan yeah all right what else I also think that it it shows that we yearn to be in relationship with God. So when he talks about seeking him with all your heart, that there is this inner thing within us that yearns to be in close relationship with God. And since we know we're made in Imago Dei, we put this in the context of the greater text, right? We know we're made in the image of God. And so there's that desire to reconnect with that part of who we are and made in the image of God. Good. What else, Mike? Uh, verse... Um, 10, I have sought you with all my heart makes me think that this is something very uh, deliberate and conscious on our part, that we should be deliberately and consciously seeking God's uh, laws in our life and, and following them. I like that. Good. The things about what the passage teaches us about us as human beings, what we're meant to be, how we're supposed to live, maybe what's going wrong, anything? I think it teaches us that we're not God. <laughs> okay. We're not God, all right. That's fair. What else? Now this is a little different than all of that, but I kind of see a little bit of fearfulness in the way that they're talking. Like, I'm going to try to do my best. I'm going to try to do all of this. I Please don't leave me. That's in verse eight. I know that was before the passage that you read, but there, I see a little, I see a little bit of me, <laughs> you know? I mean, like, I think there's still some hesitation that we won't meet that, even though we know that we, that he loves us anyway. I like that. Well done. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, this is how just simple little questions like this actually bring us to a, like a deeper level of understanding within ourselves, right? There is that sense of, I could miss this. In other words, the opposite is like she said, instead of keeping my path pure, I might not. And then what would be the result of that? There is a fear that's associated with that, that a lot of times we're not vulnerable enough to, to admit. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah. What else? Does it teach us about us, about how we're supposed to live. Does it give us anything about how we're supposed to live? Does it teach us how we're supposed to live? Or are we on our own here? No, it's modeling it. Yeah, how so? What's well, modeling the behavior? You're wa watching Beth say this stuff. It, you're, she's modeling the right behavior. Exactly. Yeah. I keep your word close in my heart so I won't sin, right? I declare out loud all the rules you have spoken. That declaring is like I, I'm in agreement with, right? I'm giving assent to. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your assent, your ability to speak into my life. Good. Yeah. I know it's the first time you guys have ever done this. So I'm not, you know, I understand it's a new process, but. It is a very uh, simple um, way of approaching any text. If you're trying to get a rhythm developed, here's a great way to start. Yeah. What other things do we learn about ourselves? What's going wrong? How we're supposed to live? Anything? Need to be introspective. We need to review how we live. Right. So there's a, there's a call in there that automatically kind of, I think building on a little bit about what Courtney said, where we're, we are trying to match ourselves up with how do I how do I match up with what's happening here? In other words, like as I'm reading it, do I rejoice in the content of the Word of God in the same way I would rejoice if I won the lottery? That's my translation of number fourteen, verse fourteen. Am I, am I out of? I'm not out. I'm not out to lunch. Here. That's what he's saying, right? When I, am I as happy about engaging in the Word of God as I am about winning the lottery? That's a question I would ask myself, right? If I were journaling about this, I would say, hmm, 
I wonder, am I that happy? Yeah, Mike. In verse um, 11, keep your word close in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Mm -hmm. um, the only way I can keep God's word close in my heart is to develop that rhythm of putting God's word in my heart, yeah. which is that repeatable rhythm of delving into the word. So I think to answer the question, what does he expect of us or how should we live? That's part of it. Right. Great. Great transition. Yeah. That's that third question, right? What does this passage teach us about how we should respond to God, right? And you're suggesting, if I hear you right, Mike, that you can't keep the word of God close to your heart if you don't know the word of God, right? He's not talking about sticking a Bible close inside of your pocket, right? If I hear you right. Yeah, good. What, what does this passage teach us about how we're supposed to respond to God? In other words, what has God done to address what's gone wrong? What does God expect us of us in light of this? And, you know, ideally, we'd be able to use our answers from the first two questions to help us with this third question. I think it's also not just by reading the word and opening the word, but in verse 15, when he talked about thinking on it, so meditating on that, so that when you're in situations that may cause you to fall, that you that word comes back to play in your mind and you'll be able to recall and understand how you're supposed to respond. Yeah, that's exactly, that's the buildup of what he's saying in verse 11, or she's saying he, she, it's, it's young people. Um, I'll keep your word close to my heart so that, in other words, I'll use that so that I won't sin against you, right? So the implication there is we're to use the word of God in a way that allows us to respond in appropriate ways instead of sinful ways. That would be an application, right? We use this the implication there being we need to know what it says, right, in order to do that. Good. When I like the, um, the word in, in 13, I will declare, right? So it, it was not, I'm going to tell you what you think. It's I'm going to declare what I think out loud. So it's known. I like that. So you're, you're identifying with it. Yeah. I like that. And, and others know that. Good. Others know that you're doing that. It's not a secret. Yeah. I also like that I will not forget what you have said, because when you study and you think and meditate on it, it becomes so ingrained in you that you don't forget. Because when we talked about those percentages, when you're not opening or you're kind of reading or you don't have that rhythm, then you lose. I, I can memorize the scripture today, but if I don't meditate on it and I don't really apply it, then I will forget about it. And I won't have it as an arsenal to use when I need to. Yeah, that's like James says, what good is it to look in the mirror, right? And then walk away and forget what you look like. Yeah, true, good. Other thoughts on what does it teach us about how we're supposed to respond to God? Or maybe you want to you wanna tie it to something specific about a rhythm of, of reading or anything. What, what, what would be some of those application pieces? What are we supposed to do in response to what we've seen here? You look at the verses and just take the first couple words of each one. Pretty much lays it out. Give me an example. I seek, I rejoice, I meditate, I delight. I declare, I like, I will think. I love that. Excellent. Yeah. And it's a statement of I will do this, not I hope to, right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Jay, I like that. What else? Johannes, you started to say, I think you started to say something. I think that it also, when you do these things, it also helps you to help others. So it's not just the application to your life when you are um, intentional about, I think I will, I declare, I keep, it allows you when others start to fall and you see that to help them do the same by help, helping them and holding them somewhat accountable. I like that, yeah, good. Other thoughts? In terms of application, uh, Joanna said the word memorize and 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 I just thought to myself when we were kids and we were going to uh, Sunday school we always memorized some short little verse to take with us that day and I just thought a form of application would be to just for us to go back to that and memorize a verse every day so that we're thinking on that verse every single day. I mean, 
a verse each day, all day long. We're thinking on that because we've memorized it for that day. Just like make it that, that challenge. That's good. Other thoughts about what it teaches us about how we're supposed to respond to God? Anything? I will put in a word of, of I don't want to say warning, but uh, just, you know, take care. When, you, when we go about this, and I, I really hope that maybe some of you who, who don't have a, a holy habit rhythm in terms of you don't know how to go about doing this, that maybe you'll, you'll take this for the week and you'll say, for this week, I'm going to use this approach. Um, and that's good. I want you to do that. Um, but just remember that when we try to answer, again, when we try to answer questions like this purely from a single piece like this, it can be challenging. But the more you do it, the more scripture that you read, the broader your reading gets within this library we call the Bible, the better you know the entirety of, of the story of God as we've talked about it in the scripture, and the more familiar you become with the entire narrative, the easier it becomes to make sense of each particular passage. In other words, you understanding that creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and, and the trajectory of God, those things that we've spent a lot of time on here at the table in the last 15 years, right, all come to play as you read because you're then taking this and you're putting it into the entirety of what you know about God as revealed in scripture, right? That becomes part of the, the database, if you want to use that language, right, that we can pull on to answer in answering those questions. So as we kind of wrap up our time, what are some things that we might recommend to each other as, a, as individuals? What are some specific things that we can do as individuals and that you might want to share with the others at the table here to make scripture reading and study a holy habit? What are some things that we can do as individuals first to make this rhythm of scripture reading a holy habit in our lives? Anybody? I think... For one of the first things that came to my mind was a lot, a question is always, where do we start? Um, and so one of the things that I know that I started with was reading a proverb a day because there was one for every day of the month. And that started me without this overwhelming thing of I have to read the whole Bible in a year and how can I get all this in? And But just one proverb every day and that habit of doing that has been a big help. Great, great suggestion. Others? And give yourself grace mm. to not put um, just very burdensome expectations on yourself in regards to how much you do, how much you comprehend. Um, I think, I think when we do that, it just it becomes a, a discouraging ordeal. I understand. I agree with you. A chore, maybe. And that's not what we want it to be, right? We want it to be a rhythm, something that inspires life in us, right? Right. What else, Mike? I know it's an individual thing, but if we can do it with someone close to us, if those of us that can do it with our spouses, and um, it it can help develop that accountability, so to speak, and. Uh, we're not, we don't have to get discouraged when we miss a day because it's likely we may not miss a day if we're doing it with someone. Good. I like that. Yeah. Being, having somebody that you do it with, that you enjoy doing with, maybe a spouse, um, potential future spouse, um, as I'm looking at screens, <laughs> potentials there. Yeah, true. What else? We can even expand it to talk about what do we do as, is there things, that, are there things we can do as a community that make scripture reading a holy habit in our lives? What would that be? What would those be perhaps? What we're doing now. I think so. Yeah, certainly. Engaging in a, you know, a, a study and, and actually digging into the word and, and giving us the tools. That was my goal this morning is try to give us a tool, give you a tool. Um, that can help if you're not sure how to start. I can't do anything about the priority piece, but I can certainly give you a tool, right, that we can use. Um, I know the, the women's group has done Bible studies in the past, men's group. Here's a, this is a simple tool. You say, I'm going to pick a book, and we're going to do it in chapters or sections, and it's literally these three questions. I mean, it's not complicated to do. Um, and once you get in the rhythm of doing it, it becomes easier, 
right? And I'm hoping what we're going to be doing is, um, as I'm in Uganda coming up um, in April, um, I can get on with you guys. And even if I can't, we're going to use some of these approaches, right? It'll make it simple for us to engage in the text, right? In a way that's still meaningful and powerful. Um, we're, we're building on our community knowledge. What else? Any other things that would um, help us as a community make scripture reading a study a holy habit? I had a very smart man years ago who, in a very embarrassing way, asked me to help him read the Bible. And after about three or four meetings with him, it became pretty clear to me that one of the things he felt embarrassed about was he didn't know all the terminology that was being used. And so he kind of felt like an idiot. And I mean, to be honest with you, I took a lot, I took a pretty big lesson from that to try to not use fancy schmancy words, but to talk like I would to my youngest daughter. So, and that maybe to me that illustrates the importance of finding a translation that's readable for you. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons why we use the common English Bible is a lot of reasons, but one of them is its readability, right? We want it to be as, as, as easy to read as possible for a difficult, <laughs> typically in situations that are sometimes difficult. Good. Anything else? I think you're teaching on our personalities, understanding your personality and how you work and, and mold that into that. Um, for example, I'm a very orderly kind of individual. So for me to set a specific time, a specific goal is very important. For other people, that would drive them nuts. Right. And so I think you've got to understand that, that it's okay to be different from, you know me, I don't like the journal. And it, you know, as much as you talk about it, it's just not me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's but cool. that's okay. And okay. to learn that about yourself is a very important, I think, not to get discouraged because you're different. I like that. That's good. Any other thoughts? Anybody else want to share? Brenda? Oh, no, sorry. I just saw you went um, muted there for a second, but that was for anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else want to share before we wrap up our time? Ideas? I think a day and time, setting a time is good for some. Um, it could be as simple as taking advantage of windows that you have in your day. Some people it's morning, some people it's night. I grew up in a in a world where like when I went to Bible school, you, you couldn't even go to class without doing your, your, what they called your quiet time or your devos first, because when you went to class, they checked to make sure that your devo book was filled out and done. Right. So I have a certain um, pushback event about a specific time, but I do know for me that there are times that I need that, that are best for me to do this. And I encourage you to find out what that might be for you. For some people, that's the last thing they do before they go to bed. And I'm, Happy with that. For some people, it's the first thing they do when they wake up. For some people, it's lunchtime, coffee break. I don't think that part matters. It's your rhythm, whatever rhythm you establish that makes it a holy habit in your life. And Lent's a great time to establish this habit if you haven't already done so. All right. Well, we thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.